0: In Ephesians chapter 1 and I can't I don't recall I don't listen back to these sessions that I do because I hate to listen back to anything I do so I am uh, assuming where we are on the Sunday session uh, I think we are in the prayer that Paul prays for the church here having declared an immense and perfect salvation in Christ and just the, the beauty of it and it is, it would take forever just to go through the first part of chapter one to explain and to look at and to go in detail with all that Paul spells out in this first chapter of Ephesians And men have tried to do that, and the fact is, it's just too great. Because in the midst of it, what we're talking about is the sufficiency and greatness of God in Christ. And we're not only speaking of it as a perfect and realized salvation in Christ, we're speaking of something God has bestowed to the soul of the believer, what we have because we are present and known of God in him. And when you are faced with that type of picture and, and reality—not just a—not just an abstract idea and theological uh, concept—when you're faced with this as the very state of your soul, you you begin to understand how out of your depth you are. When you just read the words of it and. Realize he is declaring something that's far out of my reach when it comes to understanding it and knowing exactly what he's saying. So there's speculation here and there. Every, I mean, most religions are created upon speculation. Christian religion especially is, is founded on speculations of men and our desire to approach God. But the fact is God approached us the fact is, God has done in us and for us what we could not do ourselves, and just the, the immensity of that gift of grace is something beyond us, and we have to basically come to grips with that, at least intellectually, at least scripturally, we have to come to grasp with the fact that, you know, as Brother Sparks would say, I think it's in his School of Christ book, that when we come to Christ and approach the greatness of him, we must realize we're standing on the shore of an immense ocean, of of reality and we have to admit is something we cannot know we are out of our depth we're beyond ourselves and that's just the point what god has given us is something beyond us is something undefined by us un not measured by us and that's good news everything else is not good news if you're the subject matter and you're the point and you're the You're the glue that holds it all together. You're the one that's supposed to make it real or not real. Your actions and your thoughts, and I know this flies in the face of Christianity, your actions, your thoughts, that all can either add to, take away. No, we're talking about something that is other than us, greater than us. It's a work of mercy that God has bestowed. So in the light of all of that, and we have went through each part of it, and I won't rehash all of that, but in the light of it, in the declaration of such a great thing, we have to, as Paul did, as those who would present such a thing. Because the reality that the gospel that we preach must always be in accordance to the salvation that we have. It's, the gospel that we preach has to be him because he's the substance of our salvation. If it's something other than that, we're not preaching the gospel, we're preaching you know, instructions, or we're telling people how to live, or we're demanding from them what they can't give. And all that can do is either prompt self-righteousness in some and condemnation in others. And sooner or later, those who find self-righteousness will eventually come to condemnation because they'll finally hit that wall. But the gospel declares something that never changes. Declares something that is perfect and real because it is perfectly real and realized in someone other than you. And if that's not what we're proclaiming, that's not the gospel. And those of us who are proclaiming the gospel have to finally step back and say, that's as far as I can go. It's hard to do that. It's hard to... Relent what we think, the little bit of control we assume we have over things. I faced that recently. You say and you say and you say and then you hear feedback and you're like, oh my God. Has anything I said even made a difference? Paul faced that a lot. He wrote letters to people that he had built up in the gospel and declared the very reality of Christ and then here they go. Circumcision, holy days, and they are swayed to those things because those things lay upon the faculties of men and they seem sufficient. They seem like they're the key to unlock something. They're the key, they're that next step to reach some kind of a spiritual level that everybody's after. The gospel, however, doesn't leave you with steps to take or levels to achieve The gospel declares Christ in you as sufficient in all things. Christ in you is the ultimate level that God ever intended for the soul to reach. It's not about the attainment of anything. It's about what Paul's about to pray. For those who are born again, it's not about attainment. It's not about a process of getting more and doing. It. It's about knowing what God has bestowed to your soul. It's about comprehending a reality that is greater than you are. And sub- Because, here's the thing, we don't realize. When we come into Christ, when we were born again, we submitted our soul to something greater than ourselves. We submitted our soul to something sufficient and that is not of us but of him. We submitted our soul and came to be born into the reality it is not I but Christ. And yet religion will teach you things that contradict the very reality in which you live. And they'll say this is how you please God. This is how you do it. This is how you live. No, Christ lives in me. What's the need then? The need is for me to know the one who lives in me. Not try to become sufficient in myself. Not try to reach the same level as him and reach that spiritual level that I say every man's after. What God has given us in Christ and this is the thing that's just always on my mind. The thing that's in my heart more and more. That. I try and, you know, it seems like a very repetitive and monotonous way to say it. What we have come to, what God has gifted to the soul of those who have believed is a summary and summarization of God's eternal intent. We have come to his Aim, his desire fully reached. That's who he is. That's who Christ is in us. That's God's purpose realized. God's aim eternally. His divine thought and intent perfectly, amen. And he abides in me. There can be nothing added to it. And I'm certainly not big enough and good enough and powerful enough to change that. I approach this reality knowing my need of grace and mercy and we must also approach the comprehension knowing our need of his mercy. Otherwise, we will see ourselves. We will try to define all the realities he's just spoken of here. The forgiveness of sins, a redemption, all spiritual blessings accepted in the beloved. We will begin to define all those things looking at the earthen vessel instead of realizing it's the gift of a treasure that's in that vessel. So in Ephesians chapter one, let's read the verses before I keep going. Verse 15, chapter one. Wherefore, tying together everything he set up to this point, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom, and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, and the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. I like the English Standard Version uh, says it this way. we, uh, We may not get there, but having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope unto which he has called you. This is not talking about a hope that he gives us as believers. A hope for something great, a hope for something in the, you know. This is him calling you to the very reality that was always hoped for. This is the hope into which he has called you. Go to Romans 8. It's the hope of a creation that was subjected to their own vanity, waiting on the coming of a life that would, that would be able to fulfill the law under which they lived, the condemnation under which they lived. That was the hope. It was a messianic hope that in that one who was coming, God's will would be fulfilled, righteousness would reign. Well, that's what has happened. We are beneficiaries of God's hope fulfilled. The fact is, we're not those who are trying to hope for something. We're not hoping for a better tomorrow, or we're not hoping for the kingdom of God to finally arrive. We are those in whom the kingdom of God lives. We have that hope. In us, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you doesn't give you the hope of glory. Christ in you is the glory of God that was always hoped for. The whole economy of the testimony, everyone under that age, it had a hope to it. It was in hope that he subjected a creation to emptiness. So what was the end of that hope? the liberty of the sons of God would finally come about. The hope was salvation in its most perfect form. And that is life living in us as the law and the righteousness of that law fulfilled. And we could say all that all day long and then men can come and say, wait a minute, you can't do this or you've got to do this and we are carried away with it. We think that's the way. Why? Because it seems as if that makes sense. It makes sense that we've got to fall in line. We've got to get our act together. Well, guess what? You can't. There's no possible way you can get your act together. Can we change? Absolutely. You can change. Does that change your soul? Absolutely not. Your activities does not affect your soul. We could go off on a tangent on the soul for a while, (laughs) I won't. The way we have wrongly defined the soul has been a real impetus to how we have screwed up Christians and kept most Christians in a state of absolute uncertainty, insecurity. So they're always trying to fix themselves. Why? Because we have defined the soul as a mind and will and emotions. What a joke. Come on. The soul, the mind, the will, and the emotions. Guess what? My mind is always. If that's my soul that He inhabits, and I think that the stability and the validity of salvation depends on my soul being secured, and my mind is a million different places and directions, and my mind's never settled. There's certain times this happens, and guess what it does? It uproots people. Because they think the soul's salvation depends on the mind being settled, secured. Talk about emotion? We have them. And they change up and down, most people, more than others, some not so much. But guess what? Differences in ourselves, that's the thing. Everybody's got different emotions and they're up and they're down. I'm crying, I'm laughing, I'm thinking, you know, I have all these different emotions. And guess what we try to do? Get our our emotions in check so that our soul can be secure. And then the moment our emotions fly off the handle, our soul is no longer secure. We do this to ourselves. It's like a sick, twisted game. But why do we do that? Because as long as I can bring you into the picture, I can make you the object of the end of the picture. And that'll keep you occupied. But once I tell you that it's all done, that salvation is sufficient, then that leaves you with one directive. You don't need my instructions on how to do it. You need the gospel to direct you and to see and know the one who is the doing and the sufficiency of what God has done. We're always trying to get our will in line. Buddy. There's only one I think that ever did that, not my will, but thine be done. We're always trying to be obedient. And Paul says it's by the obedience of one that we are made righteous. <laughs> you see how we bring ourselves into the whole thing. And Paul is describing something that is unchanging, unmoved. Forgiveness of sins is not today but not tomorrow because you messed up. No, forgiveness of sins is a state of the soul because Christ abides in it. Redemption is a state of the soul that is secured eternally and sufficiently and forever. It's a permanent work of God. The reason we have so many variables is because we haven't heard of a gospel. We haven't heard a gospel that proclaims a a life in which there are no variables. A salvation where there are no pieces and parts that are missing. And again, when you're faced with such a thing, such completeness and security, there's only one thing to do and that is turn your heart to see the one who makes such a wonderful thing real. Or else you're gonna be the prey to somebody who wants to make you their Project. It's what Paul said, right, about the Galatians. He said they don't love you. They're not after you because they're concerned about your soul. They covet you because they want to see you make the same external changes, circumcision, that they tell you to. They want control over you. They want to be able to define what it means to be righteous for you. God defines this. And he has eternally defined it. And that's really the issue that I find. That's why God has to reveal his son in you because it anchors the soul in realization where the soul is already anchored in reality. It brings reality and realization into the same place. Because you can have reality. And if you're born again, you do. You have a reality that is of God, not of us. Sufficient in all ways and never going to change. But as long as our realization is still here, looking at this, there's never certainty there. Paul wanted them to know and recognize something that God has wrought. That he would give, and that's the, that's the picture. That he may give unto you the spirit of wisdom. And revelation. This is not something you can learn. This is not something you can come by. By just academic. You know. Enhancement. This is something God has to do. God himself. Who gives you salvation. Because you can't have it otherwise. Is the same God that has to give you. An understanding of the salvation he's given you. Do you see how much weight we carry, how much influence we have in this, what you have to do is understand that when we come into Christ, we're under subjection to a higher power. We're under subjection to a greater authority, and we need to just submit, not only to the receiving of it, but unto the knowing of it as well. Otherwise, what you have received and what you know are always gonna be at odds. I find that Christians would much rather get fixed than be overridden and overcome. What do you mean by that? What I mean is, we're always after the fix. We We want God to fix us. We want God to make us better. We want God to change us. But what does that change? What's the proof of that change? It's always here. It's the very thing that Paul warns them against. Is the proof that we look at to say, hey, we're holy here. We're righteous here. We're good. And Paul says, touch not, taste not, handle not is the very thing you need to flee from when that's the gospel, when that's the directive, you need to flee that. Why? Because they're focusing the whole of your salvation on the outward and the earthen vessel, and it's never found there. Should there be things that we touch not, taste not, do not? Absolutely. But the basis of that can't be they told me not to. Because that's not strong enough. The basis of that has to be there's a reality greater than that. There's something more perfect than not touching it. It's being dead unto it. It's having a life that is other than that, greater than that. It's not circumcision or uncircumcision, make your choice. It's Paul saying neither one of them mean anything. We're always trying to decide between the two, and Paul says they're both not helpful. I don't care who thinks they are. The Jews thought circumcision was very helpful, and Paul understood it wasn't. And neither is not being circumcised. And you can preach that too, right? We do that. You have all these rules. We don't have any rules at all. Well, that's just smart, isn't it? <laughs> let's, let's just say, hey, let's, everything goes. The problem is we think either one of those is the gospel. No, the freedom is I don't live, he lives in me. The freedom is righteousness has nothing to do with me. That's liberty. If you want to define righteousness, you've got to do it the same way God has done it eternally. And that's in the person of his Son. That's what not I but Christ is. Not I, period, but Christ, period. And if he lives in me, he is the explanation of every spiritual reality in me. I'll never be that, no matter how hard I try. I've tried doesn't seem to work out. Not for long. I can certainly convince myself of it for a while. But not forever. So we'd rather get fixed. We'd rather the remedy be found here in this vessel than realizing that the remedy of the thing was to put a treasure in that vessel by which we are known of God. By which we are related to by God. And I'm going to want to get into a verse uh, sometime, probably not today, that says that. And it's basically the mirror image because that's basically uh, when I was starting this, that it was to be a parallel study between uh, Colossians and Ephesians. And they are parallel in many ways. But We'll read that verse in a moment. One of the things that that did stick out to me though as I was studying this in Ephesians 1 I never really have heard this before and it took me a while to just say okay and it didn't make sense but it does make sense if you consider it. That when you see these words that God may give unto you the spirit of wisdom that the eyes of your understanding, being enlightened. In the Greek, those are in the aorist active tense, which means past tense. But they're in the active, past tense, active tense. Meaning it is a past tense occurrence having active present effect. What is he saying there? Because I've always read it like you bunch of dumb people, blind as a bat. You need to see Jesus. Yeah, we do. But he's not saying to them you haven't seen Jesus. He's saying to them the need that is continual. You have seen the Lord. You need to continue to see the Lord. You need to let the Lord continually make known in you a reality that is other than you. Greater than you. A reality to which you've come by mercy must by mercy be the continual realization of your heart. That's what he said. That the God who has opened your eyes would continue to open your eyes. That you may know what is. I love just stopping right there and considering just that phrase. That you may know what is because that is what Paul is describing in this letter. What is? What is their salvation? What is life? What is holiness and righteousness as it's perfectly defined? He is saying that God would continually make known to you that which is in you. That's the only hope we have, to comprehend anything of what we have Received in the beloved of God. We have to have his face continually uncovered before our soul. That we may see reality as it truly is defined. Perfectly as God knows it to be. Because in, in, the, in the light of truth, the only perspective that matters is God's. What I think about a subject matter means nothing. My belief... Doesn't mean a thing. I think that's why he comes to Jesus. He says, Jesus says, do you believe? And he says, yes, I believe. But help mine unbelief. Seems like a contradiction. No, it's a confession of weakness and dependency. When you understand that your belief and your faith toward God is still insufficient. That what you understand is still not the full understanding that's why there has to be the ongoing realization in the face of christ christ can't just be one time seen and then you say i've got it no this is an eternal reality the immensity of which is universal we have to see him constant there has to be a not i but christ perspective not just position not just reality, not just state of being, but to understand my state of being in the light of not I, but Christ. That'll change a whole lot of things for us. That simplifies everything. There's the simplicity of Christ that we miss so much that there is one that defines it all instead of there is Jesus and then he helps me become something. No, he defines it in you perfectly. And as long as the soul is still not beholding that one who perfectly defines spiritual life, then we're going to try to find the definition elsewhere. And what we do, I mean, we're always going to be the object of it, but it's what we do, how we think, how we feel, how we act. The eyes of the heart must be flooded with light. The eyes of the soul must see. As I was thinking about this, the the verses that came to my mind, and I put it down here somewhere, um, if I can get to it. John 11, this is... We all know this, this is after Lazarus has died, and Jesus is coming, and they think he was late, if only he was here before, and uh, Martha runs out to meet Jesus, and in verse, <clears throat> in verse 23 of John 11, Jesus says unto her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection on the last, at the last day. And Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. And he that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And what occurred to me, said this is what Paul's really talking about in Ephesians. He has just described a person. He has just described an I am that has been given to us as life and righteousness and holiness. I mean, he said in 9 and 10 of Ephesians 1, that God summed up the whole thing. It was all toward that moment where God would sum up all things in heaven and earth and summarize them all in one, even in Christ, in one man. And then he prays, now I want you to see this man. The issue is, Martha entirely believed in the resurrection. She knew there was a resurrection. She just didn't know the resurrection. She believed in the concept of it. She knew it was a true spiritual divine concept. But she had not yet consolidated the resurrection in which she believed with the person who stood in front of her. See what I mean? She had not yet, or the dots, let's say it this way, consolidated or connected the dots. In her own mind and understanding, the dot had not yet been connected. She had a belief in resurrection, but it had not yet been joined to the person who is that resurrection. And the same can, and many times, is true of us. It's always true of us to some degree, in fact. And it's true of us who abide in Christ. We fully, man, we're so full of doctrine and beliefs and ideas. And we believe those things wholeheartedly, and most of them, if not all of them, may be true. And may be just perfectly scriptural. And we believe them, and we fully believe, like, let's for example, we believe that there is a demand for holiness. We affirm that there is righteousness that is necessary to be pleasing toward God. We're taught, and we attempt with our whole heart to obtain and attain obedience to God. And we want to please God with all of our heart, and we desire purity of heart before God. And we're taught those things, and we believe they're necessities, and we believe they're true, and they are. None of that's bad, none of that's false, as to the fact that such is a requirement, such is necessary. The issue for us, in whom God has bestowed all spiritual blessings, those of us to whom the good thing has come, our souls the the issue many times is our souls have not yet had those spiritual realities affirmed or confirmed we haven't had those terms those standings that they represent of divine perfection codified or arranged within the singleness of the son of god who abides in us meaning the concept of spiritual reality and the man and substance of spiritual reality have not yet been known to be one in the same and we're still saying oh yes i know holiness is is what god's after and guess what we'll do we'll fall prey to men that tell you how to be holy Oh yes, I know righteousness is God's requirement and we'll fall prey to men who tell you how to be righteous. And we'll fall prey to the measurements that they provide for you to be righteous. Such as the Colossians were doing with the Judaizers. And the whole point that Paul was telling them to warn them was just what we were gonna read. This is the mirror translation of, or the parallel uh, translation of or verse in Colossians of what we read in Ephesians verse <clears throat> chapter 2 of Colossians verse 1 for I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea and for all as uh, for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh that their hearts might be comforted being knit together in love unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding. See, that's what the understanding God brings to the soul gives. Full assurance. And it's it's an assurance I can live in and walk in and be secured in. It's It's when my soul actually experiences the Reality of the Sabbath in truth. And I'm able to rest knowing that my salvation is secured in Christ and not in myself. I'm able to rest in the fact that this is a reality that is defined in the singleness of I am the resurrection. I am righteousness. See? Otherwise, I thought, I must be too. I have to be righteous like him. No, the I am is always the I am. Spiritual reality was always defined in the singleness of I am before you and me ever existed. And God never changes that. That standard never lowers to be defined in men. That standard stays eternally pure and perfect, untainted by men. But it is the gift of God to the men who would believe. There's a mystery. It is provided of God in its most pure form and it's untaintable, incorruptible by man's touch. It can't be touched by you. You can't lessen it. Because you can't touch it. It secures you. And it touches your soul in a way that makes that soul complete. And makes that soul perfect. And yet that soul and nothing of the earthen vessel in which that perfection abides can change it or corrupt it. That's good news. That's good news. That's not I but Christ. That's reality defined in I am that I am. Not I am and you must be too. See, we think that because we read words that sound like that to us. Be ye perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Okay, you first. You first. When you get it done, then we'll come talk. You tell me how you did it. You know how you did it? You have a perfect life abiding in you. God did it. That's perfect. That's complete. That's why it's the end of Matthew 5. Where he says, you think it's about not committing adultery. I'm telling you, it's about the heart that can even conceive the thought of lusting after the woman. Who is that among us? Nobody, no man, but one. That's why he comes in that old picture of Matthew 5, from the Beatitudes to the very end of that sermon on the mount. He defines himself as the law fulfilled, as the perfection of their hope, as the completion of their anticipation. And he's basically saying, come to me. I'll be in you what you could not be. I will be the law fulfilled in you. I won't just keep you from doing it. I'll be the life in you that can't even conceive the evil of it. That holds us in place. That before God is acceptable. That's why we have a treasure in this vessel. That's why Paul would say it's not of him that wheels or him that runs. But of him that shows mercy. If it was about us wheeling and running, we'd all be running as fast as we could and we'd try to trip the other person. If there was a prize at the end of that race and you were like, I'm getting there first. You're not. We would all be comparing ourselves and the speed and that's what we do. When the whole thing is the mercy of God, it's an act of His mercy, not an act of our performance. So He says, I want you to come to the all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father who is Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of God's wisdom and knowledge. See, there's where God's wisdom, the riches of his wisdom. What is this wisdom? Christ made unto you, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2. That's the wisdom of God that no man can know, that even the Spirit, only the Spirit of God can go to those depths and to that reality. So he says what has to happen is God has to give you the understanding he has to bring you to the full acknowledgement of the mystery of God. What does that mean? The acknowledgement means. It means an intimate acquaintance to become fully acquainted with. This is not just doctrinal belief. This is an acquaintance with a person. This is an intimate acquaintance with a person. Just like I am the resurrection. You say, oh, I believe. And he says, no, I am. I have strongly held doctrinal beliefs there, Jesus. I am. That overrides your strongly held doctrinal belief. And that will keep you in the midst of a turmoil when you don't understand. And you don't have a doctrinal belief because it just got thrown out the window. I remember being there I was going to one church, and then I went to a conference that was about a whole different uh, church of God, what I used to be. I was raised in this, but I was over here now in kingdom, sonship. Within the span of five days, I went to both conferences, and I was as confused as I could have ever been in my life. I didn't know if I was gonna get sucked off the face of the earth or rule and reign in it with Jesus. I was so confused, I didn't know up and down, and I went, God. And that was one of the moments where he said, it doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what they say and what you believe about what they say. I am salvation. I am sufficient. Now that can't be taught to us in theological books and doctrinal statements. That has to be made known to us and our soul become acquainted with a man who determines for our soul all things in the sight of God. That's what needs to take place. Does that make anything real? No, but it makes your soul realize what is real so you're, you will not continue in a million different directions. Because that soul that we talked about earlier that was created of God to be the dwelling place of Jesus Christ, of spiritual life, is always anticipating and crying out for the living God. And religion will take you in a million different directions and divert your attention from the simplicity and singleness of that reality. But God's spirit does not. The spirit of God brings you right face to face with the simplicity of God's eternal intention. I am. And That is what he makes himself known to us in that capacity. Do we have beliefs? Yes, we always will. And when you've worked for those beliefs after, with, with years of study and struggle, it's, it's hard to get rid of them. But when the I am appears, it's not very difficult. If I tell you this is true and you believe this is true, we'll fight all day long. <laughs> we'll just disagree and struggle with our concepts together. But guess what? When he appears, There's no fight. When Aaron brings the sticks out that have been in the Holy of Holies in Numbers chapter 17 and he gives everybody their stick and the only one that's budding and blooming and bearing fruit is Aaron's rod. Guess what it says, their murmuring stopped. Their complaining ceased. All arguments is over. When they see the living one. When they see who actually is living here. Who actually is accepted in the holiest of all. Who is righteous. We see it in the face of the I am. Guess what? There's not many questions left. That's why there's a continual need to see Jesus. Because there's an eternal life before us. So I pray as Paul did, may God open the eyes of our understanding. May God give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Not that we may know many things, but that we may know him. Because in him we find the defining and substance of all things. So we'll stop there, guys. Amen.